Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. The cops have made some mistakes that don't give us the right to riot and shoot cops. We need the cops, especially in the black community. We as black people, we've got to do better. We never get mad when black people kill each other, which that always has bothered me. It has always bothered me. And then somebody's going to scream like, well, you can't change the subject. Well, first of all, I've never changed the subject. I've always said we as black people, if you want respect, you have to give each other respect. You can't demand respect from white people and the cops if we don't respect each other. So uh, I, I, we got to do better as black people. The cops have made That was former them. NBA forward and now NBA analyst Charles Barkley. And he was calling in to the Dan Lebertard show discussing his views on police-involved shootings, race, and, critically, black Americans' behavior. As you could hear, Barkley was expressing the view that a necessary step for black Americans to be respected is to behave in a manner deserving of respect, the implication being that one reason we often are treated with disrespect now is our own behavior. This view is an example of at least one form of what's been called respectability politics, according to which one key to uplift of the black race is for individual black Americans to behave in ways that violate negative stereotypes, including dressing and conducting ourselves in ways that conform to high standards, usually meaning the standards of upper-middle-class white Americans. Black respectability politics can be controversial. Barclay has been criticized for his remarks. Writer Ta-Nehisi Coates has mildly taken former President Barack Obama to task for engaging in respectability politics, too. In turn, Writer Brando Simeo Starkey has taken Coates to task, suggesting that Obama has not engaged in respectability politics, and thus, Coates was wrong to suggest it. My guest today is David Crockett, a marketing professor at the University of South Carolina. Crockett has studied respectability politics in the context of consumer behavior. On his view, black American consumption, from clothing to housing, may be in part influenced by a desire to manage stigma. Crockett has written about this topic in the Journal of Consumer Research in an article titled, Paths to Respectability, Consumption and Stigma Management in the Contemporary Black Middle Class. We discuss these issues in this episode of Tatter, titled, Above and Beyond. What led you to this project? So most proximately, I can say it was an outgrowth of my dissertation work, which was on um, was on housing segregation and how um, residential segregation by race um, impacts the way that people do basic household provisioning. So I was looking at people going to the grocery store and finding kind of primary health care uh, in the city of Milwaukee. 
Uh, so in fact, I, I did an, an ethnographic approach to that dissertation work, which meant that I left Arizona as a PhD student um, and moved to Milwaukee. I stayed there for 10 months following people around to grocery stores and, and visits to their doctor um, and home to talk about health and put up their groceries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that took me all across the city talking to a variety of, of families. And in many ways, I mean, you know, you know how this works. You can't put everything that's interesting into one project. Right. And so there was there was a lot that came up with my middle-class African-American families that I just didn't have an opportunity to, um, to get engaged in, in my dissertation project. And so, you know, I put that thing off for years and years and years. I kind of, you know, dawdled along kind of at the edges of that project and got serious about collecting data again. Um, really in, in 2008, really yep. with the Obama campaign and, and subsequent election, um, it really kind of became one of those things where people just kept asking me about that. And, you know, like 2004 was the infamous Bill Cosby rant. Yep. Um, and so a lot of issues that were circulating in the black community generally, but where there was a particular spin or perspective that the black middle class um, didn't sort of have on mass, but was kind of working its way through. Yeah. Um, those are questions that ended up kind of on my desk all the time. And so I thought I better get serious about doing this again. And so I set out um, to, to talk to African-American middle-class families um, about this issue of stigma. So you know, in that dissertation paper, I was really interested in, you know, kind of racism as an institutional force, right? The the way that, I don't know if you've ever been to Milwaukee or have much familiarity with Milwaukee. I have not. It's, it's routinely one of the nation's most segregated cities on the basic um, segregation indices that kind of look at neighborhoods and say, if we were to have neighborhood by neighborhood racial parity, how, what percentage of black or white um, households would have to move? Yeah. Right. Um, and so Milwaukee, Chicago, yep. St. Louis, where I basically grew up, you know, a lot of the Rust Belt Midwestern cities are, are typically very high on those kinds of indices. So I was looking at this kind of big institutional thing and, and kind of talking about how it impacted everyday life. But what became apparent during that dissertation phase was how the role of stigma was especially prevalent in the way that my middle class families thought about racism yep. that was not missing from, but less prevalent in the way that my black working class families thought about racism. And, and to right. make sure that I'm clear, yes. are, you, are you drawing a sort of macro micro distinction here? I think that's probably that's a reasonable thing to say, and so um, you know, which always uh, kind of leads you to the next really dangerous question: is you know, what do you mean by macro and micro? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, um, to make it, I, I hope, fairly simple for for your listeners, um, the the, the kind of macro stuff that I was looking at was really this force, um, you know, residential segregation that is that lies beyond the perspective or the prejudices of any one individual. Those right. prejudices can be active, 
but they don't make the situation. And so that's kind of how residential segregation functions. There are plenty of prejudiced peaceful people, but there are ways that housing is structured in Milwaukee um, that kind of end up putting black people in the same eight or nine neighborhoods, yep. um, et cetera. Um, whereas um, stigma is a bit more micro. It's, it's certainly more micro. It, it, it does kind of bring in these um, prejudices and attitudes and so forth, but it, it's not reducible to that. So it's also about kind of in the main how people are being viewed in particular sorts of interactions, right? Like, you know, do their, does their speech or their actions strike people as aggressive, for example, that's one kind of stigma, or unhealthy, which is another kind of stigma. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that I found my middle-class family struggling with, right? Because they, they, in some sense, have made it, you know, like the old folks used to say, they've gotten yeah. the, the nice house in the nice neighborhood. Um, and yet all the stuff that's supposed to come with that doesn't come for them. Yeah. Right? All the reputational kinds of enhancements that are supposed to be part of moving into the right neighborhood and sending your kids to the right kinds of schools, those things don't come. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite, right? People yeah. are very quick to discount. So that's what I was finding with my middle-class families. And so I, I needed to sit and talk with them about kind of what that's about. And so I, I think related to this mm-hmm. is something that I saw early in the article where you draw, where you point out that the, that anti-racism scholarship Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly examines, uh, in your terms, challenges to systemic racism mm-hmm. um, rather than, by contrast, uh, managing uh, everyday racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is, am I right that that's also another way of looking at the distinction you're drawing between these uh, more, more macro uh, level or uh, yeah. processes versus a stigma on the other? Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. So, um, and maybe to kind of make this plain, um, so the, that first category, these challenges to systemic racism, you can think about um, the kinds of scholars that typically are interested in anti-racist action. So your your historians, your sociologists, and people like me in marketing, um, yeah. and, and psychologists, etc. Their primary interest is in understanding. The, what people do to try to equalize their institutional power, right? Yeah. So if there's a power imbalance, how do we change laws? How do we get people elected? How do we reform programs and policies, et cetera? And so a lot of our anti-racist scholarship is like that. Um, but because it works at this macro level, there are some things that can get left out of the mix. Um, and that's the sort of, these are the kinds of things that involve managing racism on an everyday basis. Uh, One of my favorite examples here um, comes from a a multi-country study that came out, I believe in 2016, um, by sociologist Michelle Lamont and a a number of scholars. The book is called Getting Respect. And one of the countries they looked at was Brazil, and they talked to a woman who had the unfortunate circumstance, a Black Brazilian woman, of um, she was a, a business executive at a company, and they were entertaining out of country clients who were staying at that hotel. 
you know, they were taking them to a show or something. And so, you know, she's in her evening where she comes to scoop them up at the hotel and the desk clerk assumes that she is a sex worker. Yeah. And kind of gives the sort of gives her, you know, when she asks, are those folks there? You know, he kind of gives her the wry smile and and says something, you know, kind of out of line. Um, And she talked about how she felt humiliated. Yeah. Um, And how it, it when I read that passage, it struck me that. A march or a boycott or even trying to get that guy fired doesn't really do it, right? It doesn't scratch the itch that this woman experienced. Yeah. Right? And so those are the kinds of everyday interaction uh, between people kinds of things that all of us who experience racism end up having to manage some kind of way. And most of the time, our interest is less in justice, per se, because it's not clear what could be done in that situation. Yeah. Right. Really, what we're seeking is a way to tolerate and move past what has happened. And so that's the the managing everyday racism um, that I wanted to try to capture. And that's what was coming out from my middle class black families early in my career that, you know, I kind of had to go back and ask them about um, a little bit later. Um, There's a historian, uh, Robin uh, Kelly, his book, Race Rebels, um, he takes that very same perspective and he argues that um, these kinds of actions, this managing everyday racism, it doesn't necessarily shift elections or transform social movements, but it often it puts down the basic layer of interactions between people on which movements and other kinds of things eventually build. Um, so Robin uses the great example of um, Jim Crow busing. So we yeah. all know Rosa Parks in Montgomery, but he talks about decades earlier, what went on on the buses in Birmingham, Alabama. So in a different part of the state, he said that, Black people were raising hell on those buses. They were frequently refusing to move, getting in fights, um, confronting bus drivers, you know, the whole nine. Um, And none of that was sort of organized into a boycott campaign. But it was a kind of everyday resistance that people engaged in. And it was on those kinds of activities that the later bus boycott was able to build. So one of the things that I really liked about your piece was that, uh, to go back to this idea of, uh, mm-hmm. as you said, uh, scratching uh, an itch uh, mm-hmm. uh, that, that can't be scratched uh, mm-hmm. by, say, policy change necessarily. Right. You drew a distinction between two different forms that mm-hmm. I would say respectability politics can take, mm-hmm. uh, normative versus oppositional. Yeah, I mean, as, as I see it, I, I see it as the distinction between uh, an African American who makes sure to wear Brooks Brothers uh, mm-hmm. to the office versus an African American who uh, uh, wears 
neatly uh, prepared cornrows uh, mm-hmm. to the office. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, I don't know if those examples map onto it, but can you talk about what right, you're getting right, at right, with right, normative right. versus oppositional? Okay, no, this is that's actually those are great examples. Um, so, what I tried to do is kind of take that same that same basic insight. Um, that's about kind of managing everyday racism and historicize it. Um, And so my argument throughout the paper is when you're trying to deal with the kind of stigma that, you know, my sister in Brazil was dealing with that both, that is both raced and gendered um, in her, in her instance and, and classed um, in her instance, right? Um, you're trying to manage that. And it's like you said, it's an itch that, that can't be scratched by policy. Well, what are the approaches that you can use? In the main, there are really only two. Now, there are two broad approaches that have limitless variety, right? Um, so one approach is to try to reform the self. That is to try to align yourself with whatever is not being stigmatized. Right. So um, it's kind of like historically that has been, you know, whatever elite white people are doing wherever you are on this planet. That is the thing that seems to be beyond stigma. So so that's my Brooks Brothers example. That's your that's your Brooks Brothers example. Right. Um, And so the locus and the focus of your effort is the self. Right. Both of them. So. It is these efforts come from the self and they are targeted at the self. Interesting. Fix your feet, fix your mouth, <laughs> sit up straight, you know, and make sure your hair is, is fixed before you walk out that house. Right. Um, the other approach, which is not mutually exclusive, and we'll, we'll talk about kind of what the differences are, is to focus on institutional reform. Right. And that is to say, what could this woman do? to change the behavior of the clerk at the desk, for example, even if not in that instance, mm-hmm. um, you try to change the institutions that generate stigma or you try to change the institutions that control the resources that you need to combat stigma, right? And so here, the, the locus of the effort is still the self, right? The effort comes from me, but the focus of the effort is those folks who are doing dirt, you know, those folks who are stigmatizing or those institutions that are, are stigmatizing and doing damage to me. And so I'm trying to actively destigmatize, right? Whatever's being stigmatized. All right. So those are kind of the two basic approaches. And what I did was, was historicize them. Um, I talked to black families and basically what they told me across three different states and I, I may end up trying to kind of blow this out and do it nationally at some point because I do think cool. there might be some regional cool. differences. Um, but they told me about the strategies that they use. Um, you you probably remember that figure in the paper. Um, it was that came from an Urban League pamphlet um, in the early 1900s, where and and the Urban League in Detroit when black migrants would take the train up from Mississippi, Alabama, etc the Urban League printed up these pamphlets to hand to people as they got off the train that showed you, you, the, 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 These are the side-by-side photos of the, the two, two black women. Yep, right. yep, continue, continue. Moment. Right, right. Okay, yep. And so, you know, and on one, ha- on one side, they kind of showed her sitting on a stoop. She's got a dress on. 
Um, but you know, she's got she's got a wrap on her head on her hair. She's kind of slumped over. You know, not very good posture. She's not sitting very ladylike, as one might say. Um, and then the she, 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 she's raggedy, as we would say in my she old neighborhood. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> she's ragged. Um, and then on the right side, they show the same woman sitting erect, same dress on, but the wrap is gone and her hair is neat. You know, she's sitting with her hands placed lovingly on her lap. Um, you know, she's got her shoulders back and, you know, she has fixed her feet and fixed her legs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and so that that is kind of normative respectability. And, and when Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, um, the, the famed historian, when she coined that term, that's what she was talking about. That self-reform, you fix yourself and then people won't stigmatize you. Yeah. Right. Um, now, we know kind of all the problems that are associated with that. Um, and yet at the same time, there is, it will always be one of the ways that people manage stigma, <laughs> right? I mean, that yeah. there's, there's no getting around some amount of this. Um, now, it has pol- legitimate political criticisms. Um, and one of those criticisms develops over time, right? It's it, not the least of which is that the black middle class sort of designated itself the arbiter yep. of what constitutes respectable, right? Yep. Right? And, and, you know, they were, and, and they have been, and we've known uh, kind of how this works. Um, a lot of these preachers and, and, and petty bourgeois folk um, will tell uh, working class black people in a minute, um, you know, don't sag those pants, take that cap off, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that was the Bill Cosby pound cake speech. And you can read a version of that speech from middle-class black people in what era, whatever era of history you, ch- you choose to look at, yep. right? That, that ain't new. What is kind of new is what begins to happen post-World War II, but really begins to play out after 1970. The emergence of this oppositional respectability is a little bit different, and you use the cornrows as an example, and I think that's a really good place to start. Um, it says, we do what we do, and we try to be true to our authentic culture, our authentic Black culture, whatever that may be, um, and we try to push institutions to change their um their stigmatizing behavior right and so yeah. we we're gonna make cornrows be okay right right and that's oppositional now it's easy and i think you would be correct to say that you can find elements of this in any historical period there's been some kind of this going on but what is what what becomes different um after 1970 is the black middle class's grip on what constitutes respectable loosens a whole lot um, after kind of the demise of the civil rights movement, of the civil rights era. Um, Working class Black people get a much more extensive and important say in what constitutes um, respectable. And the, the, the locus does shift a little bit more from being almost completely self-reformed focused to having a much more extensive and explicit role 
for challenging what institutions do. Right. So those so, are those are the two. Mm-hmm. So I just want to jump in with a question um, about normative respectability, because Mm -hmm. as I was reflecting on it, it occurred to me that there was yet another distinction. And Mm -hmm. your paper is one of the ways in which I really like it is it's it's rich with interesting and I think Mm -hmm. useful conceptual distinctions. But Mm -hmm. there was one that I I saw missing. And and it Mm -hmm. occurred to me as I was recalling my interactions with uh, my uh, Black grandmother, Mm-hmm. Um, my maternal grandparents were my primary caregivers when I grew up okay. in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, not an uncommon experience for a, a, a young black man in the, in, at least in the South. My um, grandfather and my uncle were mine. Okay, there you mm-hmm. go. And mm-hmm. so, um, oppositional respectability was definitely not their style. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but um, in thinking about the kind of normative respectability that I experienced, I recalled. I recalled one day uh, sitting on the couch talking to my grandmother and my aunt and uh, I was in the marching band in my high Mm -hmm. school Mm -hmm. and I told them that I wanted to audition to become uh, the drum major Mm -hmm. and they didn't fully understand what it meant to be a drum major at my high school. It was really, you'd wear, you might wear a tuxedo, you would uh, stand up straight, you would conduct Mm -hmm. your orchestra and that was about it. Mm -hmm. Their image of a drum major was drawn from the drum major at the University of Arkansas, uh, Pine Bluff, for in the Mm -hmm. old days, uh, Arkansas Mechanical and Normal College, uh, uh, an HBCU. Mm -hmm. And uh, the drum major for that band um, was not straight-laced in any way. Uh, It had the the big furry hat, the big baton, would run, would dance. Uh And imagining that, my grandmother, not missing a beat, said, oh, so you want to be a clown? (laughs) <laughs> and it was clear that they did not uh, approve. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but in thinking about this and thinking about that and thinking about how she always, she never let me leave the house without a belt uh, mm-hmm. in my pants. Mm-hmm. And there were a variety of other ways that Absolutely. she in, his, insisted upon normative respectability. But when I was thinking about why she wanted me to engage in this, my sense was not that she was trying to get me to uplift myself uh, in order to engender greater respect for African-Americans as a whole, mm-hmm. rather, she wanted to make sure that I individually, despite mm-hmm. that stigma, was uplifted. And so I saw a distinction between normative mm-hmm. respectability, mm-hmm. Where, the, where the goal is to uplift the, Af- the specific African-American mm-hmm. individual so that mm-hmm. they are not mm-hmm. um, seen to be marked by that stigma, mm-hmm. versus a normative respectability where the goal is to lift them up as an exemplar so that the race as a whole escapes stigma. Right. Am I right that that was not a distinction that you explored in the paper? And 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 if not, or whether you have or not, I wonder if you think that that is a useful distinction to draw. I think that it is a useful distinction to draw. I chose one side. Okay. Right. So um, I put my focus on the one that says we're trying to uplift the race as a whole. Yep. Um, and I wanted to limit my focus there because I was thinking about. I was thinking about respectability as um, kind of broader scale politics. I call them micro politics in the paper. Yeah. Um, and it, it really is about kind of how individual comportment um, is, is to be reflective of the race. And, and, and the reason I thought that was important and it plays out historically um, is that 
these kinds of decisions about personal presentation, which I lump in the category of consumption, right? Yeah. Um, these kinds of decisions about personal presentation were often seen as not just having impact for you and your life, but having impact on the race as a whole. Yeah. Because the, you know, the, the logic being, and I know you've heard this, is that I'm over here clean cut, you know, doing my thing. I wear my tie, my Brooks Brothers suit, right? And then you trot up in here with your, corn, your, with your cornrows yeah. um, and people might think it's cute, but you messing it up for all of us. Right. Right. Um, and that's the, that's the sort of politics that's engaged here because it is, it is extra individual. Um, in that mm-hmm. sense, and that's historically what's been important about um, about respectability, whether it's normative or oppositional. It is that the black middle class kind of assumed the role of political leadership um, inside Black America, and the, part of their rationale for saying we can impose these standards of propriety is that hey, what one does reflects on all of us. And that sort of that that is kind of the politics of managing stigma. That it isn't just about your individual response; it's about all our responses. You're, by the way, you're, you're helping me see a new spin on the mm-hmm. uh, uh, common phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is uh, she being so extra? Yes. Is it now? It's extra individual. That is, yes. why is she behaving in a way, or why uh-huh. is he behaving in a way that's going to actually uh-huh. affect the rest of us? Uh-huh. But it, anyway. Right, right. No, that's a, that's exactly it. So you know the what I think of as at least in my own thinking, if nobody else's, what I think is the real value added of the paper is in sort of thinking about today in two thousand and twenty, we all use both forms of these kinds of respectability types. We. And people have always used both forms. The real question is what factors determine which one we use in which situation? That's the question I try to answer here. Like, Because the goal of the study is to show the conditions under which each strategy is likely to prevail for someone. And then once they use it, do they think of it as successful or not successful and why? So before we mm-hmm. actually, no, I'm, I'm going to find a particular page in the article because there's one, there's one story that comes to mind. It's the story of Cynthia. Uh, so yes. Cynthia, mm-hmm. uh, so, so you, you recall by name because uh, yes. you cited uh, her under the heading when oppositional respectability fails. Mm-hmm. Can you talk mm-hmm. a bit about Cynthia's story? Right. So she's very interesting um, because so Cynthia is an attorney and um, she is the daughter of a very prominent local African-American minister like you know how all the presidential candidates are coming to, to uh, <laughs> a certain Southern state because it's important in the early primaries for, yeah, for yeah. people voting. His church is one of the churches that they all visit. Right. So 
she she grew up as this this person's daughter um and for her it was very interesting the way um social class politics played out here because for most of the folks in my sample and in, in this jive with my own experience you don't figure out respectability it's kind of like with your grandmama saying oh so you trying to be a clown you are <laughs> given respectability right like this is how you deal with stigma and i'm going to let you know kind of how it goes you best fix your fix your face and fix your head before you trot about this door um and so for most of us i think um respectability is placed into our so-called repertoire right the the set of strategies that we have available for us for managing everyday racism um folks put it in there and it's been a common strategy used for a long time but that is very different than the way sociologists tend to think about how people first come to have strategies for managing situations whatever those situations might be what many um cultural sociologists tend to argue based on the work primarily of Pierre Bourdieu mm-hmm. is that these kinds of strategies come to us through our families but they're almost invisible they are part of your everyday lived experience but nobody tells you do it this way right right there's a reason that certain con- people who come from certain kinds of backgrounds might have a taste for caviar and other people might have a taste for malt liquor right it, it, nobody had to say this is good and this is not yep. it just comes from uh what they call the habitus you know the milieu that you grow up in but what i found is that for respectability politics that tends not to be the case it is usually quite explicit Well Cynthia is one of the cases the really the only case that I saw um where it worked the way that sociologists usually suggest that it works. So for her she grew up, you know as I said her father was a prominent pastor not just prominent locally, prominent internationally. Um so she traveled the world as a young a young child. Yeah. Um you know with her dad, you know A because they made a middle class living but also B because of the nature of his work um she found herself um traveling to african countries um as a kid and into her young adulthood and in the case that i uh in the instance that i um cite in my paper she's talking about as a young adult um uh, in fact when she was um finishing up law school and about to take the bar she went on one of these trips with her dad and so she's actually in this country helping him um and talking to the locals about setting up a school um and while she was talking about this I and mean, I'm fascinated by this story she starts saying you know it's a real shame that more of us and really she's talking about you know black people of some means don't um kind of take the opportunity like like Oprah did for example of opening up one of these one of these schools because you know you can help so many people and you know in many of these um developing countries the cost is what we would consider quite reasonable right it's it's the sort of thing that uh, some individuals or maybe even a church could get together and do and say you know that's our charity right we're going to open up a school and hire some local people to manage it um etc cetera, etc cetera. and she's kind of like it's a shame that more black people 
don't do that. Um, and on the surface, I think, you know, she, she definitely has a point. But what was interesting was that this was kind of her version of respectability politics, but it was not obvious to her how her own background opened up this possibility as something that she would readily be thinking about, whereas other people who, who come from solidly middle-class backgrounds would never be thinking about that because they've not traveled internationally. They may know about people you know, kind of over there and that they have struggles, but their focus would much more naturally be local, right? Um, and so she was sort of fascinating to me kind of in that way, in that, she, you know, she, the way respectability came out for her was this very sort of subtle, um, this very subtle way. It, I don't think her dad or her mom, you know, kind of ever had to say to her, fix your face and fix your feet, yeah. um, you know, kind of in order to get out the door. It became interesting for her later on because um, she became a gentrifier. Right. Yeah. Right. And so she moves into a gentrifying neighborhood and she's struggling with the fact that the local, you know, traditional households that are mostly working class, you know, don't recognize her as being one of them. Um, and that's a struggle for her. She's really, she's, she's even debating whether to continue to stay in the neighborhood at the time I did my last interview with her. And you also in the paper said that um, her efforts to change the narrative mm-hmm. in this gentrifying neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, ran up against an obstacle, and that was the counter narrative uh, created by crime. Yeah, yeah. So she moves into, I think, a lot of, uh, Cities with sizable black populations, you know, have different names for the black part of town. I mean, very simply, it might be called the ghetto, but sometimes it's even more derogatory. Um, this area of the town where she lives is called Black Bottom. Yep. Um, you know, to both give the, the the racial identifier and the stigma of last place, right? right. <laughs> um, so this, this is the bottom, but this is one of the areas that is that is, of course, gentrifying. And so... When she walks in, when she decides to buy this house, part of it is about she's approaching it in a way that is similar to the way she set up that school, that charity in that African country. Like, I'm going to go over here and do this good thing um, for these people. Um, And in the case of that charity, you know, those folks over there recognized it as good and were appropriately grateful. Um, But here, in her neighborhood, she's like, I'm going to be, you know, she works for a really powerful law firm in the town. You know, she's the kind of black person that, you know, you, you hope to be living in your neighborhood. She's a good neighbor. She's good people, um, all those things. But she approached being in that neighborhood with the same set of politics. Um, and those politics went over like a lead balloon. Yeah. So not only were they sort of rejected on their face by the people who live there, they don't trust her. They see her as an outsider, but it simply wasn't enough to overcome the deep stigma because, you know, this is the limitation of these kinds of micro politics. You, it, it can be difficult to consume your way out of them. Um, even if you buy a house and refurbish it in the worst neighborhood because more black middle-class people need to live there you can still, that neighborhood is still a ghetto. 
Um, and that can be, you know, that all of these politics have limits and where people see them as having failed. So I want to zoom out from the content for a moment and talk about the method that you used. Sure. Um, and my question is about safeguards that you employ as a okay. researcher mm-hmm. when, when you are relying as heavily on um, interviews as your methodology mm-hmm. uh, as you have. It would seem as if a risk mm-hmm. is that you can emphasize uh, certain content, mm-hmm. not so much because it's there disproportionately as mm-hmm. it's what you're looking for. So just to yeah. use a concrete example, uh, you, in that distinction that I drew between uplift of self as an individual versus mm-hmm. uplift of the race as a whole, mm-hmm. you focused on the latter. Mm-hmm. But one might wonder, I'm, I wonder, mm-hmm. were people actually saying some things that were consistent with that other prong but because of your, um, say, perhaps because of your prior uh, mm-hmm. ideas, mm-hmm. you focus on the one and not the other. Like, how, right. how, do you, how do you guard against that potential for bias, basically? Um, so the first order of business is that, you know, when you use interviews um, and other kinds of qualitative methods, generally speaking, and I, and I tried to be uh, as clear as I could about this, you don't make inferences about what's typical, at least not outside your sample, right? So I'm yeah. not, I'm not arguing, I, I, and I want to make sure the readers know this. I'm not arguing that the people in my sample, um, you know, extrapolate in any simple way yeah. um, to black people everywhere. Um, quite the opposite, actually. So rather than thinking about trying to understand the central tendency of some distribution, my focus is actually on saying what's going on with these kinds of people, not just the people in these three states, but people under these circumstances, right? So I pick the circumstances. So I'm very, I want to be very clear about that. I'm picking the circumstances and then kind of taking the microscope out and looking under, under the circumstances that I pick. Yeah. Um, so that someone else might come along and 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 want to look more explicitly at um, just the instances where um, people are managing everyday racism and the focus is is just on the self and they're not they they have less interest in broader politics. Um, in fact, that's actually the distinction I make between what I did and a lot of the literature that's on coping with racism. So there's a good bit of literature in social psych that I, I know you're familiar with um, on how people cope with everyday racism yeah. um, that, that is very related to the work that I did, um, but not quite the same. Um, and really that, that distinction about sort of is it political or not is where I tried to make that cut. All right. So um, in terms of specific um, method choices and, and, and trying to deal with, with bias, I love the example that, that you chose here um, because in my work, I always want to stay away from counting heads, mm-hmm. right? Because if you pick interviews 
that's not what interviews are good for, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Interviews are good for helping you understand people's story about why and how. Yeah. And that's the that's the question that I wanted to answer. Um, kind of state it more formally. These ethnographic and interview-based approaches are good for uncovering how sociocultural systems operate. Um, so if you want to know what people are doing to manage stigma in a micro-political way, there's nothing to really count. Um, you got to talk to them and observe them. And, and so that's what I set out um, to do on that. I might have redesigned that study to get at some of the questions that you that you asked. And there, I would have used a survey um, or maybe some natural experiments and things like that. And so for this question, I just want to ask you to imagine that a student comes to your office. Let's mm -hmm. say it's, it's an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. um, and that student is familiar with uh, your work. Mm -hmm. Maybe, do you teach undergrads? At I any do. Point? I have a 495 student principles of marketing, um, huge lecture. So let's say one of those 495 students <laughs> comes by mm -hmm. and uh, unlike you're at Bates, given the size of the class, uh, they <laughs> say, hi, my name is so-and-so. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, actually, in fairness, I have a terrible memory. Some of my students here have had to introduce themselves. So I, I, in case one of them is listening, I know my <laughs> weakness. But, uh, but certainly with that many students, you, you might, they might introduce themselves and they mm -hmm. say, you know, I'm enjoying the class. I find it really interesting. I've, I've read some of your papers. And I'm, I'm the kind of student who wants to go on and actually make the world a more just place. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested in, among other things, um, addressing, not just understanding, but actually reducing uh, mm -hmm. racial injustice. Mm -hmm. And I'm considering going into marketing. Mm -hmm. Is that a good decision given that objective? What's your answer to that student going to be? Okay. So um, I literally get that question a lot from students. Okay. Um, and, and no small part because I talk about uh, justice issues in the marketplace in my class. Um, and so, Which, by the way, that violates my stereotype of a marketing professor. I just want to say that. <laughs> well, I violate a number of them. So I, I won't <laughs> say that all of my colleagues are like me. Um, <laughs> so here's kind of the, the answer that, that I typically give students who ask some version of that question. I'm a do what you're passionate about guy. Um, that, that is my thing. Um, I always say that, especially when you're in college, you have to start there. There's, there's given the kind of money that you're going to pay to get this degree. You, when you walk out of here, you better have a pretty good idea of what you're passionate about. Yeah. Not necessarily because that is that will determine what you do. Um, no, more that that will help you filter out what you don't want to do. Right. That's what's important about it. Yeah. Um, and so when you figure out what you're passionate about, you will begin to recognize the various roads that lead you to that place. So if you're about social justice, yeah, there are things that you can do um, in marketing it that may not be the main thing that you do all the time. But, you know, if you can get 20 to 25 percent of that to be part of your part of, of your job, you know, my my younger sister um, works for Wells Fargo 
And actually, she she doesn't work on the consumer banking side. She is quick to say <laughs> um, she's worked on the um, on on the regulatory side in the past, and now she does like some sort of risk management, whatnot. But like what what she's passionate about is um, in St. Louis. Um, the headquarters there is situated in a part of town that is almost literally next door to um, an HBCU. And so she has spearheaded a number of attempts, well, not just attempts, she's spearheaded some programs to recruit students from that school into the bank in, in various corporate kinds of positions. You know, and so for her, she's able to scratch that itch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, give, even given her career choice. And that's why I say you start with what you're passionate about and then you go try to understand the lay of the land in whatever, whatever area you choose, right? So I'm going to do what you're interested in, God, but I understood that that meant, I'm, you know, for the kinds of stuff that I was interested in, I was probably going to be pursuing a niche sort of strategy, which is actually why I went to graduate school. Yeah. Um, you know, I interned for four summers when I was in college um, at old fashioned brown shoe company in St. Louis. Um, and the last summer they messed around and allowed me to um, to serve some time. And they had a small in-house um, research market research uh, area. They didn't do much, but they did enough. And that got me excited about research. And I still had the social justice focus. I was all set to start a career in sales, but they messed around and let me get into research. And I knew that that was not something that I could do right out of school. So I knew I had to go, I knew I had to go to graduate school. I really didn't understand what that meant. Um, I started an MBA program because I was kind of interested in research and I still didn't really know what that meant. We only got a little bit of exposure and, you know, I messed around and was in a, in a management class and one of my professors kind of said to me one day, you should think about a career in academics. You sound like an academic. <laughs> and I said, what's an academic? <laughs> right. And so you, you, you start with what you're, what you're interested in and, you know, just kind of recognize it may be niche. It could be mainstream. And then you kind of go from there. If your heart is set on playing the blues, then play the blues but you have to figure out what success looks like for you. It probably will not involve playing in front of a sold out football stadium like the Rolling Stones, right? You have to figure out that success may look another way. Just shifting to a different paper of yours that I read about Mm -hmm. uh, a transformative research agenda. Mm -hmm. There was one example that jumped out that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it was an example of how uh, data gathering techniques, if if, if a researcher is going to have what you and your co-authors call a transformative research agenda, Uh then in data gathering, they have to, quote, get creative up close and personal. And one example you cite is, uh, community-led uh, total sanitation uh, uh, to address uh, yeah. the uh, yeah. public health challenges arising from open defecation, which is practiced uh-huh. uh, by about, as you say, 40% of people globally. Mm-hmm. And so just to quote briefly from the article, uh, you say, um, uh, through transect uh, walks with local v- villagers, mm-hmm. open, open sites of defecation are identified and mapped and volume calculations are made 
Interviews are conducted at these sites amid the stinking flies. Mm -hmm. Far from taking an objective or distancing stance, the researcher seeks to trigger shame and disgust. Uh, <laughs> right. for, for instance, questions are posed to illuminate that the same flies that land on feces also land on food, and yes. villagers independently conclude that they are effectively ingesting feces. Sanitation is not an individual choice problem. Open defecation puts community public health uh, at risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, you say communities respond to this triggering uh, process by organizing and inventing their own latrines with local materials. This initiative has spread to 32 African countries. Mm -hmm. And so this work, it's very different from what's mainstream, at least in social psychology, mm -hmm. where people may often strive to appear value neutral with respect right. to the problems that they address. This is clearly value laden. There's clearly um, a, a policy change you're trying to facilitate with the work. My question is, is that consumer research? Is that marketing research? Oh, absolutely. So um, this was, um, I, let me uh, just preface this by saying a little bit about um, transformative consumer research. Um, that has, it's about, it's a little more than 10 years old, between 10 and 15 years old. Oh man, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> but it is a, I mean, we, we've kind of labeled it a movement, but it is, it is a subset of the discipline um, that, you know, cuts across disciplinary background. You know, we have a lot of social site people, some ethnographers, economists, et cetera. So it cuts across those boundaries that really is about kind of doing research that is um, that seeks quite explicitly to make change. Um, and you know, what I think is somewhat ironic and, and we, you know, we've had some arched eyebrows, um, you know, about whether that is sort of the appropriate role for the scholar. I will say though, you know, I will just say as a personal matter, um, you know, some of these kinds of questions are so deeply embedded in an image of what a scholar is that, that comes to people from their own, their own habitus, their own milieu. Um, and I, I sort of sit back and laugh. I mean, I'm no different. Um, it's just that my degrees were all in marketing, but my mentors were radical historians and sociologists, um, et cetera. And so to me, this is just Du Bois, hmm. right? Like this is just, you know, to me, the notion of the scholar, the Du Boisian kind of model of the scholar activist that is, without even realizing it, what I understood an academic to be, because all of the people that I knew kind of coming along at my formative stage who were academics, that's what they did. It was not until I was in a PhD program that I even had exposure to academics who thought that that was somehow inappropriate. And I find that sort of ironic, actually, in a school of business hmm. among all of them, right? Because if we just took these terms and talked about, I, I, I spent two years as a postdoc at Harvard Business School, and they, they, without shame, make it very clear that they intend to impact management practice, mm -hmm. right? I mean, part of getting tenure at that school involves... You know, what relationships have you had with organizations that do real marketing or management or finance 
or whomever. That is an expectation. And even at a public school like mine, um, no one would would bat an eyebrow or bat an eyelash about someone who did work with real corporations to make the change that they are interested in. We only get the eyebrow arching when it's about a certain kind of transformation, which I think is, that's unfortunate, right? To me, the statement there about kind of what you might do as a researcher is pretty plain to see. You know, there were a number of researchers that were involved with households in Flint, Michigan, teaching those folks early, like way back, um, how to how to conduct the tests for lead and other materials in their household water. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons that that even became a national story is because of the work that that everyday people put in running those tests themselves and sending that data to a handful of the people um, who were working there on the ground um, for whatever that water department is. It wasn't the top people, but there were some people at the lower levels who were, and some university people who helped people understand how to conduct the tests and how to send in the data. I don't see any problem with that. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank David Crockett for taking the time to talk to me. For more information on him and the topics that we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. As always, I value your feedback, and so if you want to provide some, you can, if you are a Twitter user, post a tweet and mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags. Alternatively, you can post a rating and review at the Apple podcast site, formerly iTunes. Either way, I appreciate hearing from you. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.